Welcome to the Commission Client Podcast. These are the real and raw stories of people that use their health success and struggles to better lead and serve others. If your goal of getting healthy is to have a static achievement, you will always come up short. Instead, find purpose in your health gains and be commissioned to better serve your purpose. I'm your guide and host, Dr. Kurt Perkins, introducing you to the real heroes in healthcare, the people just like you. Thanks for listening. Today we have Lynn joining us from Texas, and I think she's got a pretty cool story about, yeah, using, like being the ultimate commission client. So regaining health to then go follow your passion and pursue your purpose and those types of things. So I think Lynn, you can probably tell your story better than I could. So if you want to chime in and, and uh, just tell us a little bit about that. I'm happy to do that. So I kind of grew up in the suburbs, had a pretty ordinary childhood, um, and but I always loved horses. And that was not really much of an option because we grew up in the Washington, D.C. suburban area, which it's very expensive for horses there. It's a great city. There's a lot of really terrific things about it but it is not super cost effective to have horses in that environment. So I kind of put that aside and uh, I got a job and through a series of kind of career shifts, I became a director of finance administration for think tanks in Washington, DC. And I never forgot about the horses though. And I started taking lessons part-time, kind of your classic group lesson scenario. And I kept thinking, well, that'll kind of take care of it. I'll kind of, you know, knock that sort of wish list item off from childhood, and then I'll continue on and be a grown-up. Well, that didn't quite happen. (laughs) So I ended up getting more and more involved with the horses, and um, to the point where I was sort of waiting every day for 5 o'clock to come, and then just heading straight out and going and working with horses. And through a long series of coincidences, I ended up, falling in love with X-race horses. X-race horses often need help when they're done racing, finding new jobs. Um, in the horse adoption world, they're seen as similar to pit bulls in the dog oh. adoption world. Yeah, they're seen as sort of inherently difficult and high strung. And, um, but I fell in love with them. They're great athletes, Dr. Kurt. They're very uh, just intelligent, very uh, kind of what we say, they have a lot of competitive heart. That's why they like to run. Yeah. And they just these huge personalities, just like giant personalities. So I was completely not qualified to ride them. <laughs> uh, the people who I rode with would tell me on a regular basis, Lynn, those horses will kill you. Don't even think about riding uh, them. So, of course, I had to ride them. <laughs> so, I, yeah, of course. So, so competitive so, meets competitive. Yeah, exactly. A little bit. Or maybe just like it was more that I admired them so much and I aspired to be the kind of person who could ride them. Now, yeah. I, I, just in case you think I'm running around being this incredibly amazing rider, I was one of the worst riders <laughs> in the history of this riding bar. I was so excited and eager and I would, couldn't wait to get on the horses and I would drop things and I would act like a spaz and I wanted to, to try so, so hard that I could not do even some of the most basic things. But, um, it, it really just wouldn't leave me alone. And uh, over time, I, I met my husband in D.C. He was from Colorado. And we were both getting tired of that maybe, what you would say, type A environment that's very common in cities like Washington, D.C. Yeah. And we decided we wanted to move someplace else. 
So we shopped around the country and we hit upon Austin, Texas. It had a really interesting blend. Uh, my husband wanted to kind of slowly segue into a different career himself, something more creative. I wanted to do something with horses. So our brilliant plan, Dr. Kurt, was that we would just move there and find jobs when we get there because yeah. that's what happens in DC. DC is a great job economy. Yeah. If you walk if you walk around and you don't actively like drool on yourself, you immediately can get a job, <laughs> right? So we got there and this was way, way back in 2002 and there were no jobs in Austin then. Um, now there's lots of jobs, but there were no jobs. I remember going on Craigslist and there were only like 500 jobs listed in the entire state wow. or something. Yeah. So we ended up deciding, well, we're not going to make money, so we might as well not make money at these new things. So I started teaching riding lessons and Tom started uh, doing sort of web and graphic design on the side. So I know this is a long story, but it's just, it's kind of how it worked out. But yeah. uh, while I had been in DC the last few months, I volunteered with a group that worked with horses at the track. What they would do is go to the track and take photos of the horses that needed to find new homes. Now the track is kind of like going back in time to the 1920s with Seabiscuit and everything. <laughs> Technology is not popular. There's a lot of barriers to um, the outside world, especially then, because the track is closed to the public, the training area, because of state regulations. They don't want anyone coming in and tampering with the horses and whatnot. So the, and the race trainers, again, lost in time, had no idea how to do these modern things like the internet. <laughs> so we would go with digital cameras. This is back before smartphones. Take photos of the horses list them on a very simple website, kind of like Craigslist for X race horses, and try to help these horses find homes. So I loved it. And when I got to Austin and, you know, I'm working for like $7 an hour teaching uh, riding lessons to children, which is pretty hilarious. I was like, well, why don't I take some of that nonprofit experience when I was working for all the think tanks, even though I can't find that kind of work here in Austin, yeah. Or maybe I could volunteer for a similar group and that would help build credentials in the horse world. And then I could kind of make use of that nonprofit background. So I called some of the local racetracks and said, Hey, do you guys have a group like this? And one of them said, no, we don't. Would you like to start it? <laughs> and I was like, okay. Cause at the time I was like, well, that's just going to involve a website and going to the track, which I love to do and taking photos with my clunky digital camera. So that sounded like, Hey, that's pretty reasonable. Well then all hell broke loose and uh, it just kind of exploded. And uh, I was living with my husband in a, an apartment that was primarily full of the complex was full of uh, UT students college oh. students yeah so we were living in this tiny apartment i drove a saturn a pretty battered saturn and uh the race trainer started asking me if i would take courses for them they would say hey i've got this horse she's got a little injury she needs to rest but no one wants her i don't want her to go to a bad place can you take her and i'm like i live in an apartment i cannot take her <laughs> but it started to really bother me so i the barn that i taught lessons at uh, they had a farm a little further away, kind of a little out in the country. And the owner of the barn, she would send her retired school horses there. It was like a big pasture environment where they could retire. And I, all of us who worked at the barn teaching lessons would two or three times a week take turns feeding the horses, the retired horses at the ranch. 
Well, next door to that ranch was a little place, little teeny house with about 20 acres, no horses on it. And I talked to the man who owned that place one day. I saw him taking his trash can down to the, to the front gate and told him about what I did. And did he ever rent pastures? And he's like, I'll rent you a pasture for $20 a month. Wow. And I was like, okay. So then I took my first horse in because I was already going out and taking care of the retired horses part time. Well, from there, it just, it went crazy. I mean, we ended up the first year taking in 40 horses. <laughs> I, di I did not know how to ride X-Race horses still at that time. This was a detail that I worked out later. Yeah. And it just, it was just one of those things where it took over. And um, I really enjoyed it. But I also, uh, I think what captured me about it the most was that uh, I felt really privileged to be able to help these horses. They were so incredible athletes. It was really amazing to me that they needed any kind of help. And the fact that I, someone who didn't learn to ride till I was an adult, total dork in the saddle, uh, could actually do something that was useful to them. And I found that very compelling. And um, I was making, I just wanna stress this, very, very little money. But every time we would go out and meet people or go to a party, I was always so excited for someone to ask me, what do you do for a living? Because yeah. I'd be like, I have the greatest job ever. <laughs> so that's how that all got started. Cool. Um, so starting a business, or I guess, yeah, in a sense, starting a business, I feel like I get a lot of clients that are in that mode and they're putting kind of their health on the back burner to follow that passion for them to then be like, okay, when this is up and running, I'll take care of myself again. Like, did you have that experience or? That's an interesting question. So it was kind of twofold. Um, I did not perceive myself as having health issues until several years after I began running this. Although if you looked at the history, there were signs. I just yeah. ignored them. But most of my job, this was not a figurehead position. So uh, I was on a 26-acre farm. We eventually bought that farm through another long series of coincidences that involved very dubious financing, I might add. Um, we, every day I would get up and I would have anywhere at the time from 10 to 15 horses to feed. I would go out and um, carry buckets of feed out, throw hay, work with the horses to the best of my ability. Slowly over time, I became proficient enough that I actually started to work with them, train them and ride them. And so every day was extremely physical and outside based for me. And that really balanced something in me. I've always been a very high energy person. When I worked in the kind of more office corporate environment, I was known for never being in my office. I was always walking up and down the halls, like, you know, engaging in impromptu meetings somewhere anywhere outside of my office. So that I think helped in some ways that it was so physical. Um, but then over time, because I wasn't really aware of all of the things that were going on under the surface and I wasn't particularly attentive, I didn't realize, you know, that there were nutritional things and uh, maybe for back, lack of a better word, physical training things I could have been doing differently. And so things started to deteriorate. And I definitely just thought, I just need to work harder. And that, to me, that meant work harder physically. 
Yep. And uh, and then I would get stressed running a nonprofit is not easy, particularly when you didn't really plan for it. Right. So learning learning how to fundraise and develop relationships, it was very much a boutique operation. So if I got up and I was careless or I didn't uh, think of the right thing to do, we might not get enough funding for the month. So it felt very responsible. Like I think a lot of you know entrepreneurs do. It's usually almost always a bootstrap operation. Yeah. And so those things started to slowly wear on me too. Did you have a breaking point then? Because I feel like that, that story I hear a lot of when a high achiever, high performer person starts to decline, their initial instinct is I just need to outwork it basically. Yeah, completely. That's exactly what I did. And, um, you know, why would I ever like surrender to anything? <laughs> why would I ever, why would I ever say, you know, this doesn't seem to be working. Why don't I stop doing it instead of doubling down? Like it just didn't occur to me, you know, and uh, these basic things. So there were a couple of, of breaking points. Um, I have a very stubborn temperament. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. <laughs> and uh, so when, when faced with what I would say is a series of, unexpected events that I find to be unfair, I tend to brace up quite a bit. So in about 2011, um, we were kind of at the phase with the organization. I had, I had written a book and that had done pretty well, just locally best-selling and everything. And I was starting to shift the organization less from adopting racehorses and more into educating uh, you know, potential adopters, but also people who work with these horses professionally about a different way to work with them from a horsemanship perspective. This was my big interest. And so we were slowly starting to shift into an area that I felt was much more, I would say, needed and um, maybe more specialized. Yeah. And in, tw in 2011 in Texas, where we lived at the time in that summer, we had one of the worst droughts on record combined with high winds. And uh, we lived on this farm, it was a fairly rural area, and um, uh, a giant fire started. It was probably one of the worst wildfires in Texas. And it started, um, actually my husband saw the start of it. He was driving home from his office a little bit in a small town, a little further away from our farm. There was an area in Bastrop County that was a pine forest, very rare. And in Texas, Texas is not known for pine. Yeah. And unfortunately the fire started there with um, some electrical wires that went down. And pine is like the worst for spreading fire because the, the needles and the cones explode kind of, and then it scatters. So, um, and there were high winds and there'd been drought forever. So it just exploded like a tinder and the whole area was under massive fire watch. In fact, it got so bad, they were sending in firefighters from other states. It wasn't as bad as what California is going through, but it was, it was the most intense thing that had ever happened in, in Texas, in, in, I think, it, ever. So uh, the first few days, it was far enough away, we didn't think anything of it. But I started to get a little nervous because that's my nature. <laughs> and uh, uh, one day I was looking out and you, know, you can start to see that it's getting really like the air is changing and everything. And I decided, even though we weren't under evacuation orders, that that morning, it was Labor Day, I think, Labor Day 2011, that we were going to start getting some of the horses out. So we had about 12 horses, I think. And we had a three-horse trailer, oh. which is not enough. So yeah. most, most horse people don't have like a trailer that carries like every single horse on property. 
So I, I put the word out on Facebook that Lope, my charity, with that we were deciding that it might be a good idea to start to send some of the horses out to different areas in the central Texas area because their fire risks were also high. There were smaller fires starting everywhere. Um, and so that started to happen. We had some people come in who took the horses. I sent them out two by two to different parts, like to more northern part of Austin, to the more east, like all these different areas with the idea being if smaller fires started in these areas, at least there were only two to transport at a time. Right. And uh, about halfway through that process, we were down to like six horses. The winds, a new fire broke out about a mile from us and the mm. winds were changing. The winds were not favorable. And so that's when it was like, we really need to leave. So I sent my husband, I hitched up a trailer and I sent my husband with uh, three horses in a trailer. And uh, he never forgave me for this. And the house cats, <laughs> the house cats, he had to keep the house cats. So he drove the truck and trailer out to our veterinarian's place, which was uh, probably about 45 minutes away. And then I was left with the, the, the nervous dog and, uh, <laughs> and some other horses. And I just started waiting for trailers to come in. So we were basically where we kind of threw ourselves to the mercy of the community, which is not typically something that I automatically do. And I was so touched, you know, every people came from all over and got our horses out. So we were very lucky. The fire did not actually hit our farm, but we had to stay out away for a little while. And then after that, I crashed, I got really sick. And it, it turned out that I, uh, at that point got diagnosed within a couple months with Hashimoto's and my iron levels had plummeted. Did I let this stop me? No, that would be silly. I continued on a full <laughs> schedule. And the following January, this is just a very, very classic Texas story, Dr. Kurt. The following January, so this is like less than four months after the fire. Yeah. Uh, there were heavy rains predicted. No big deal, right? And uh, this is normal, you know, like I said, in Texas. And we woke up in the middle of the night because the rain was so intense. It sounded like something was actually like falling on us, like more of like a sheet of some yeah. kind. And we checked the radar and what was happening was what is called training in Texas, where it's called training other places, but we, we especially notice it in Texas, um, where you have a band, a system of heavy rain that sticks, that stays, it doesn't move on. And it trains, it just sort of trains over and over on itself. So you have this very intense rain cell that is staying over an entire region. We had something like seven or eight inches in two hours. Wow. And by the time we had woken up, we were cut off. Our drive, we had a quarter mile driveway and we were completely cut off. We could not get out. Never had that happen before. <laughs> so we're in a little cabin with you know, a small house. And uh, we can't get to the horses because they're on the other side of the water. And um, we started calling 911 and they couldn't come till several hours later because they were having to pull people off the tops of vehicles with helicopters. Oh. That's how bad it was. Yeah. So we were rescued by boat, uh, a little boat. And uh, that was the, the fire rescue team came. And uh, that was pretty amazing. And then several of the horses were trapped. So our neighbors were trying to get them out. We had horses standing in chest high water. And uh, we ended up moving them over, managed, again, community coming together to a neighbor's place, crossed the fence. They cut the fence so we could get in there. And uh, our place was totally uh, 
flood damaged. We had to live someplace temporarily for six months. Plus we had all the horses. So we camped out for, uh, we were very grateful to some friends who had a barn apartment. So it was my husband, me, uh, a nervous dog and two house cats <laughs> in a, in a one room barn apartment, like a studio. And, uh, and then of course the organization kind of got stopped because it's really hard to run an operation when you have horses scattered everywhere, but we got right. it back together. We got it back together, Dr. Kurt. Yeah. And, uh, that all worked out great. Took a while. Got back home, and uh, it was about six, seven months later. And then I was working with a young horse, and I, I took a bit of a tumble, and uh, kind of hurt my back. And I was like, "That's okay. I'm gonna bounce back through that." This is I kept bouncing back. And then a little less than a year later, we had another flood. Wow. So, so then we, we we were told that it was a hundred year flood that it would never ever happen again. Wow. And uh, it turned out to be just this freak thing. The second time we got like 13 inches of rain in three hours. And so it was one of those really bizarre phenomenons. So after that, we moved to a different area and we started over again. And uh, now we've completely put that all behind us. So that those things were kind of uh, what I would say a series of breaking points that I just chose to ignore and keep yeah. going. And coincidentally, I started having a lot more health issues during that phase, go figure. Yeah. So, um, but we still have the organization and we're doing even better than we ever have been in our past. And uh, I felt it was worth it a little bit to stick that out, you know? And the, and the blessing was that I learned that I, I actually do have some health things going on. It did force me to stop and be more aware yeah. because obviously I love this work enough that I'm willing to keep pushing through things like that instead of going, well, this is a great excuse. Just, I can't do this anymore. It's too hard. I was like, no, I still really want, I get up every morning. I still want to do this work. I'm not going to let floods and fires. And we also had a, a random small tornado event, which is a long <laughs> story. I was like, I'm just not, it's too biblical. I'm not, no, I'm not going <laughs> to stop this. And I love this work. And then when my health issues started to kick up more, I really felt like I was in danger of losing the work I loved. And that really focused me differently. Like I started to go, wait, I need to really reevaluate this and see this differently. So how do you recognize that? Because again, I think that's, you're speaking to a lot of people that would listen to this in that, yeah, they may not feel the best. They're still pursuing and, and pushing through for their, their purpose and mission, but like how do they recognize or how did you recognize that if I don't change, like this is starting to near a point where like, I won't be able to manage this anymore. I, I started to feel more fatigued rather than energized by the workouts and the riding that I was doing. And uh, we had a, a, a great life change, a good one, but even good life changes can be a little stressful. We found a, a the perfect place for us to live in another part of central Texas. And we, we, we bought this place, which is huge for us. <laughs> it's like a, we, we wouldn't buy furniture for like three years because we <laughs> were so used to floods and fires. Yeah. It was a big event when we stopped having metal for seriously metal furniture. So <laughs> for us to actually buy a place was just crazy. And, uh, and we bought this place and while we were moving, I started to have more fatigue incidents and I actually did the Lynn version of resting, which was that I like slowed down somewhat, but then it kind of came to a massive head and I realized 
that I was ignoring the wrong symptoms. And uh, I was participating in a horsemanship clinic. And what that is for people who aren't well, horse savvy is it's kind of like the equivalent of a hands-on creative live seminar where you're working with a horse. There's usually about six to eight other people. And then a clinician is directing you and helping you with these things. And I was in what was called a, they called a colt starting class. And that's typically for horses that have never been ridden before. So over the course of the weekend, you're preparing them to be ridden. I don't work with horses that are completely unbroken to saddle, but what we do is we, we call it restarting the racehorses under saddle. So after they've had a rest, we t- then start them under saddle as if they've never been exposed to saddles before, with yeah. the idea being that we are going to teach you that the saddle doesn't mean fast. It means something else now. So I was working with a very young horse, a three-year-old, and uh, she had expressed some tension, which is why I decided to bring her to this clinic. And this is There's a big moment in colt starting. Uh, your, your listeners are learning so much about horses that they never, I know, I never thought that. So in the cold starting class, there's this crescendo moment where you've been preparing them for probably the first day, day and a half for this with a series of desensitization exercises. But there's this crescendo moment where you actually saddle the horse and you tighten the girth. Now, I had a Western saddle. That's the one with the horn. And the girth or the cinch, as they call it, is a long leather strap that you, you, you sort of feed through um, a ring on one side and you kind of wrap it around several times and then you do a form of square knot. And the Western saddles are quite a bit heavier than the English saddles. And uh, so I had this filly, that's what we call a young, a young female horse. I had this filly, I just have a halter, rope halter on her. I've put the saddle on. It's a kind of a cold day and I've been tired and I was just like, yeah, I get tired sometimes. Like <laughs> it's just kind of my thing. And I'm saddling her up and all around me, everyone's working with their colts, saddling their colts up too. And it can be a moment where if somebody is careless or they don't pay attention to their colt or they scare their colt, the colt can start bucking and get upset. And when one colt gets upset and starts bucking, the others might too. And then you have a situation. So all of the people who are in the colt class are, aware that you know we're calm now we're very steady we don't disrupt things and if our colt has a problem we very calmly try to redirect that colt to a corner so we don't like take out everybody else in the in the the arena so this is i mean i think people use the term literally way too much but Mm -hmm. literally i was pulling that strap through which is the key moment because that's when the horse is going to feel the, the the leather strap tighten around their girth and they know that they're being saddled. And as I was pulling that around, um, my hand suddenly felt like someone had shot it. Like it, I've never been shot in the hand, but this was how I, I this incredible pain. Like I'm not talking about, Oh, I pulled a muscle or, Oh, I banged my hand. It felt like my hand was shattering yeah. and on fire at that moment and i was like oh my god like and but i can't just go uh teacher my right. hand hurts and i i have to figure out how to do that strap and there's all these colts around me and i mean i started to almost get tears in my eyes it was that painful and it was that key a moment where i just couldn't like drop everything and then the horses they're in, in my hands literally and metaphorically so I tried to use my other hand, even though it was holding the rope that was the halter, which you don't really want to let go of that. And I was trying to figure that all out and point it, and my hand just getting worse and worse. I mean, it was so incredibly painful. And it's also turning red 
as I'm doing this, I'm looking over my hands turning red and I'm like, did I break my hand and not notice it? Like what is going on? Right. I actually at one point put my mouth to the strap and use my teeth a little when kind of turn so no one can see me. I managed to get that thing on and, um, and the pain subsided so much and then it would come back all of a sudden. Fortunately, that was the end of the class for the day. They just, he just wanted us to saddle them and then remove the tack. And um, I had a, a helper, a young girl who was working with our nonprofit, and I just handed her the horse and I pulled the saddle off. And I'm like, just put the stuff away from me. Thank you very much. And I was just like, what is going on? Like I was almost shaking and my hand is getting more and more painful by the moment. So I retreated to my hotel room and thought that the answer would be like, let's just take a lot of ibuprofen and um, also put like uh, some kind of muscle rub on my hand. But I felt really weird, Dr. Kurt, like something felt really wrong. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm a fairly strong individual. I don't have issues with, you know, brittle bones or anything like that. Um, so I just didn't know what was going on. The next morning I woke up and my hand was swollen quite a bit and very red. My other hand was starting to feel very painful as well. And then I had some shooting pains in my hips. And I was like, what the hell was going on? That was all the and, next day? Yeah, it was all the next morning. Wow. And uh, I'm supposed to ride in the clinic, you know. And um, I, my mom has autoimmune issues. She had a pretty severe uh, case of lupus and had some se serious flare-up consequences. So autoimmune was always in my head, also because I had Hashimoto's. So I went online which is always like the best thing to do. I was in a very, I was in a very small town in Texas. Like there was no, and it was the weekend. There was going to be no opportunity to talk to someone who would, you know, be able to help me. Right. And um, I looked it up online and I was like, oh, rheumatoid arthritis flare. Look at that. Like I looked at the photos. It was just dead on. And then I'm feeling that kind of weird shaky feeling that all of us who have autoimmune know. And it just, it's this weird sensation. You feel like something's going on. So coincidentally, right before the clinic, the week before the clinic, I'd had a sore tooth and I went to the dentist just to check it out because I have uh, dentistry work from like the 70s in there, you know, like things are always at any moment falling apart. And uh, they told me that I had a filling that needed to be replaced that it was cracked badly. And I was like, listen, I'm really worried. I'm going to this clinic. Uh, can I get it taken care of before the clinic? And they're like, no, we're book solid. But what we're going to do is we're going to give you a prednisone pack just in case the pain gets worse and you can always take that. So um, I'm not a prednisone fan. I'd never used prednisone before, but I had a pred pack with me in Giddings. And so that's the name of the town. So I took it. I took the first day. That's what I did that morning. I'm like, can't hurt. So I took it and it lit me up. Like I just, I had a strong reaction to it in a positive oh, yeah. way. And, um, and I went ahead and I rode in the clinic and, um, uh, felt pretty weird. Uh, but slowly my hands were just getting, they were still painful, but it was more like muscular kind of what I would call more classical arthritic pain. Yeah. And I, I went through that whole thing, managed to get through the clinic, went to the doctor the following week. And that's when my inflammatory signals were just going haywire. And that was the start of a long incident where um, essentially they felt it was a viral attack, but it left me with a lot of repercussions. Uh, I, my hands and my flexibility didn't really get anywhere 
to the degree of functionality that I wanted for probably pretty close to a year. I also had some issues with, um, uh, I started to be out of breath a lot. I was super weak and um, it looked like I, I maybe had a little bit of, of impact on my injection fraction. Yeah. So just lo not enough to like be way abnormal, but I was super cardio girl. And so that was all very, very troubling to me. I was super weak. I was super stiff. And all I wanted to do was ride horses and I couldn't ride very well. When you ride young horses, it's very important that you be able to go with them, that you don't stiffen up and tighten up because they perceive that as a scary thing. And then also on a practical level, if they are to just randomly decide to be rambunctious if you're stiff and tight you can't ride out that movement very well right so it was very um it was like my worst nightmare and that's what happened that year because i had ignored some things and uh so that is what made me realize that some big things have to change or i'm going to have to give up this work and that was really heartrending the idea that i would have to give that up so that thought came across like if this continues, I have to give this up. I was having trouble doing the work that year in any capacity. And I still managed to limp along and do a few things and kind of keep the organization going. But I was extremely limited. And, uh, and I could see how I was working with the horses that I could not be as effective as I wanted to be. And uh, that was the year I was probably the closest to quitting everything because I didn't want, I didn't, I had some, some folks working with me, I didn't want to be unsafe for them. I'm, I'm responsible for safety. Right. And I'm the, you know, the leadership role here. And that means in this particular small organization that I'm the one working with the horses and making decisions. I hired a, uh, some people to help who were, uh, wanted to help with training. And as it turned out, they were really well-qualified people, but these horses are a little odd and they need a certain kind of handling. And I ended up needing to teach that to them. So it was a very complicated year. Um, what were like the things that you looking back now in hindsight that you're like, I probably ignored X, Y, Z. I think, yeah, I think the sense was that I was so used to running on empty that that felt really normal to me. Okay. And there was a phase in the six or seven months before my my shot in the hand episode with the horse yeah. that I had this sense that, you know, I think I need to recharge. Like uh, usually when I work out five times a week, I feel so much better. And now I'm just feeling a little tired. There's sort of the sense of I think I need something different, but I didn't necessarily – I didn't necessarily heed that warning. I continued to do the same things, just slightly slower schedule, which is not the same as making a big change. Right. I, I also um, was probably looking at the wrong indicators. And that's something that I think is a really common pattern where, I mean, I was trim, I was muscular. Um, I wasn't having major sleep issues. Yeah. I always had energy, I'm a high energy person. And so you look at that and you go, well, it's not, I mean, my diet must be fine. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm fit and strong, but I was not giving that certain kind of fatigue the right emphasis. Gotcha. And it was just like, you know, you got to muscle up, you got to, you know, walk it off, walk it off. <laughs> and, uh, 
so that's really the thing is that when that ex when that kept going on for several months, continuing to ignore it, just because you're so used to pushing the afterburners, yeah. I think that's really that's the thing. If I could say to someone who's listening who isn't sure. You know, if that's what's going on, if you're not sure, it's probably going on. That's <laughs> just what I would tell you. If yeah. you're going, I've been fatigued for four months now. Is that really like, do I just need to kind of double down? Like, you probably need to rest. Right. So particularly if you own a business, that's pretty much a guarantee that you're a type A person and you don't, you don't, you don't give yourself much quarter. Right. So um, that would be the thing. You know, being more aware, like allowing you have these kind of instincts. I think your body does try to give you signals that are pretty clear. And if you just kind of keep on the same old way of doing things, way of thinking about things, your body's going to, going to have to give you a really dramatic call for help. And it, those are best to avoid. <laughs> I would say <laughs> if you can avoid those. Yeah. Those are really, it's really helpful to avoid those. So what was the time period of, like things starting to get really bad before you're like, okay, I have to make some major changes opposed to like, I'll just go at half speed and see right. if up type of thing. Well, the, 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 the degree of limitation that it created and, and I've never been one, like if I'm actually having real symptoms to ignore, like what I call real symptoms, you know, like my hands are swollen and I'm having trouble breathing. Like I think that something's going on with that. Yeah. So, I, I did really respect that, but it was more of a, that kind of fearful thing where you're just like, oh my God, like I'm seeing a series of different types of doctors. I had a really good rheumatologist that I, uh, that I, I started dealing with then, but I also was sent to a cardiologist because of some of my inflammatory markers. He told me that he thought at any moment I might, I might actually be at risk for some kind of an incident, a blockage incident. And he wanted me on statins. And then I talked to another cardiologist who was like, no, I think these inflammatory markers are actually your autoimmune. Yeah. You don't really need to be on a lot of that stuff. You need to change your diet. It was very confusing. It all felt very terrifying, you know? Um, and so it took me probably about a little over a year to just process through like where I was finally feeling stabilized. I didn't think at any moment I was about to have another episode like that. And by stabilized, I mean, I was still super weak. It was like, it was like I had been hit by a truck Yeah. and I, I, you know, the truck was off me, which was great because we want the truck away from <laughs> us, but there was still some residue from the truck all over my body. Gotcha. And, um, so in 2017, I really wanted to rebuild and I started slowly going down that path, which was maybe more looking at, um, you know, I was doing some chiropractic. I was doing kind of more regular um, massage therapy, sports therapy. I, I I had a thyroid episode where I went hyperthyroid, so I dropped some weight, which was just what I needed. Right? <laughs> so we got that readjusted. Um, I was put on a, uh, an anti-malaria medication to slow down my immune system. All these things are going on. You're just trying to sort through it. And finally, in the summer of 2017, so this is a little over a year since the shot in the hand episode, I started swimming with great, uh, I, I, it was very grudgingly that I started swimming. I hate to swim, it's like yeah. the least thing, but I was like, I have arthritic issues now. Um, they might be permanent. Uh, traditional cardio, running around is probably not going to work right now because I'm too stiff still. So I started swimming. 
And I set a goal that one day I wanted to swim a mile and I hit that goal really slowly, like a really slow mile by October of that year. And um, because, you know, if I'm going to do something I hate, of course I'm going to do it like all the way. Right. But it was good for me because I was after Kirk because I was doing something different for my body. I was, and I was also allowing myself to be more physical again, which had felt really scary. Like, you know, it felt scary not to do it and it felt scary to do it. It felt scary to do it because I was like, I'm going to lose everything again. But it felt scary not to do it because then, you know, use it or lose it. Like if you just kind of get into that sort of hiding under the bed mode, you're going to have more health problems too. So, um, and then that was when my sister told me about you. She had been working with you. And uh, I was like, ah, functional medicine. That's interesting. That's a new concept. And I've yeah. always been like test girl. Like whenever they would give me lab tests, I would ask for copies of them. I would compare them. I would notice trends. Like, have you noticed that this number, although it's technically correct, is degrading? And they'd be like, oh, you're fine. It's normal range. So then that's when we started talking and this idea of changing things in terms seeing your body differently and the inflammation and the autoimmune is something not just like set in stone was very helpful and of course i seized upon that awesome. as something yeah that's something that's like hey i could maybe i won't be able to be exactly what i want but i can take control of some things which is always very comforting um, I'm Especially not just for, uh, entrepreneur. If there's yeah, exactly. control, like exactly. It's like, we really like that. And then there's this idea of, um, you know, I have tended to do things in my life at atypical times. So I was, um, a really kind of just super traditional career person with a good paying job and benefits. I was like that in my twenties. And then in my 40s, I'm starting this rescue thing. You know, I'm just out there, world travel, whatever. So I think when I look, I've always looked at the future as when you can be your best. You know, there are things you can do at a later age that you wouldn't have had the capability to do earlier because that's what's been true in my life. And so I like the idea of my genetics or previous patterns don't have to be my destiny. Awesome. And that was really what gave me a lot of encouragement that I was going to try this. Even though I'd been very resistant to the idea of diet change, like I'm fine. Oh, people get all fussy about their diets and come yeah. on, it's fine. And I was like, okay, I'm going to put that, I'm going to be open to this. And I've never taken supplements, but I'm going to take supplements. Let's just kind of see. Yeah. Um, like that, what you just said, kind of look in the future to be your best. Like how do you get people to believe that? Well, I'd say, look at me. I mean, uh, when I was in my 20s, I was a chain smoker, uh, worked in an office, didn't even know how to ride, okay? Yeah. I mean, like not anything. And now, I mean, I work with Green X Racehorses. I've built uh, a small but very well-respected organization. Um, I ride every day, right? Every day. I do things, even now, even though I would say that I'm still – not where I want to be a hundred percent, but compared to where I was a couple of years ago, I'm, I'm much stronger, yeah. but even in quote, my less than perfect state, so to speak, my, I could have kicked my 20 year old's ass right now, <laughs> like no question. And, um, and I don't, you don't do it so much like, Oh, I want people to think I'm 20. It's more like, it's so rewarding to, 
be able to make use of your experience, hopefully some wisdom that you've gained, and and then be able to just lean right into something, like really lean into something that you love and enjoy and not have a lot of conflict about it. I couldn't do that when in my 20s or my 30s even. Yeah. So that's what I mean by that. Doesn't mean that, you know, I'm, I'm going, hey, I want to be a bikini model <laughs> like the second, you know, it's not like right. that. It's more this other component. And that's what's really rare in the world. Uh, most people think that when you get to a certain age, like things are all over for you. And, uh, and that's just not true at all. In fact, the opposite is true. And I think that's kind of like an underlying philosophy of functional medicine is that traditional medicine look at the body as a pile of parts just were destined to wear out where functional medicine looks like the sum of the parts is greater than yeah. the collective is greater than the sum of the parts type of thing. And so, um, yeah, that's a hard mindset to hopefully people listen to this can, can see that in other people. Cause I think, I think it's something I preach, but again, like they look at me in a different light. And so hopefully, hopefully they're giving some, uh, encouragement from that. Now with your diet change, like you never really had to worry about it before. How was that? Like, how did you tackle that? Well, I, this is hard for me, but I just followed your instructions, which is not my normal thing. I don't, I, I have a lot of trouble, uh, sometimes just being dutiful, like following instructions. I'll go, I don't know about that. I don't know about that. That could be wrong. But, uh, like it just never occurred to me that because I, I didn't seem like I fit the profile in my mind, whatever that is, I didn't think that things like whether or not you ate, you know, it's that gluten-free thing that seems like this faddish thing or, you know, if I, if my diet's so bad, how come I'm not super fat or whatever? Right. And, um, but what I found was I'm like, I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of trust this process. I'm going to give it a solid, you know, eight, 10 months, like just, you know, what else have I got to lose? And I started to notice uh, positive effects right away. Nice. But the other thing I noticed that was even more compelling is when I was making that transition, um, certain foods I noticed actually didn't make me feel good that had never been, I'd never noticed before because it was so habitual. Yeah. For example, normally what I would do every morning is I would get up and I would have like muesli cereal with soy milk. That would be my breakfast. I'd have a fair amount of it and off I'd go. And then I would have, you know, I actually didn't eat too badly for lunches, but I would, I would have maybe more sugar and things like that than would be ideal. Yeah. Well, when I started working out again more regularly, including doing some work at the gym with some light weights, when I ate that breakfast and I went to work out, it's not only that I bonked, it's that it felt like someone had actually taken something away from me from the start. It was almost as if it had like a corrosive effect rather than just a, oh, your fuel take is empty. Yeah. And I was like, well, that's totally not working for me. That's the only thing that's in my system. So I can't say that it's something else because it's early in the morning. Right. And I, and that really kind of hammered home to me that that I, I loved that breakfast. Like I'd always look forward to it. It's like it didn't it was not the right thing. And I was so habituated to it. And it took kind of changing some other things. My body started to lose tolerance for the things that aren't better. Yeah. And so you start to have these more marked responses. A lot of my work with horses is you are very aware of the horse's body language. You're aware of small changes because that's how you build in the training on yeah. helping their mind accept new things. So I applied that same principle to kind of how where I was of my body. And I was like, oh, 
Like there's actually things here in the diet that make a difference. And um, so that was very, uh, that was very insightful and helped me a lot. How'd your doctors receive it? Or did you even talk to them about like, Hey, I'm doing these lifestyle changes. I didn't talk much to them. Um, my primary care is a good doctor. He's a DO and um, you know, they always were about, you know, any kind of healthy living's good. They always liked me as a, as a patient because, you know, I, I'm energetic and athletic and I have all these things going on. I'm not like, oh, I'm waiting for the grandkids to come and right. just want to sit on, sit on the porch. But um, over time, you know, the, the original rheumatologist that I was seeing, he's actually uh, left his practice to get, uh, to, to get some study in functional medicine, which I thought awesome. was really interesting. Yeah, no, he is really, really great doctor too. And the folks that have come in to sort of take his place are much more into it. They were always really good. I don't, I don't want to make it sound they, they weren't always just like, hey, random prednisone, whatever. Yeah. They were always interested in the whole picture. But now, they're like they, the last time I went in for my checkup, they specifically asked me what supplements I was on. They were just curious about that. They wanted to kind of keep track of that in the record yeah. and correlate it. You know? And I also noticed that their testing standards are changing. Like it used to be what they considered uh, high for homocysteine was way high. And now they're, they're getting kind of more in your zone of what they would consider a higher marker for homocysteine. So things are definitely, you know, I think I'm very fortunate. I have some good doctors. Yeah, that's um, a cool transition from them. Yeah, it really is. Um, how about the changes with your husband? Like as you're making lifestyle changes, how do you get him on board? Or was he like let's do this type of thing. He's definitely a let's do this type of thing. And he was always more of a grown up when it came to nutrition <laughs> um, because like, he would go out of town and I would seriously, I would eat like pop tarts and I mean, I would just revert. I would just revert to like a 16 year old. He actually is a good cook and I'm like, I make toast and now I don't even make toast anymore. <laughs> bread. So uh, he was really, and he's very analytical. So he was the one who was also doing like more research on nutrition. He'd already been reading on nutrition because he thought it would be something to improve over time, like just sort of looking at longer term goals. Yeah. So he was really actually super supportive and also I would say like took the lead in some things. If I was being hesitant, he'd be like, let's just get some recipes and try this. And so he would be, yeah. So I was really, I mean, I feel really fortunate to have him as a partner. Yeah, I say that's a huge thing in people's success is if they've got the support at home. Yeah. Um, it's, I mean, it's night and day results with people if they're having to fight an uphill battle while making uphill changes at the same time. So mm -hmm. um, that's good to hear. Um, I guess kind of like finish up, like what would you, you've kind of already given like some bits of wisdom and inspiration throughout, but um kind of going back to your your moment of like hey I may have to give up this career because my health is suffering like what would you say to those people who are like discouraged potentially hopeless or they're just like is this uphill battle even worth worth trying to to continue I would say that you're seeing it maybe from the paradigm of how impossible it would be to make those changes doing what you've done in the past because we only can kind of fall back on our previous experience. It really is kind of an act of faith to say, actually, by making these changes, I am shifting entirely sort of the basis of the battle. 
So like if you told me back then, you know, that the only way forward is to keep doing what you've been doing, I, I just don't think I could do it because I knew that I was tapped out for that. Yeah. All I knew how to do was like double down, muscle up more. And here I was, I was physically weak and I, I can't do that. And I thought that was my only tool in my toolkit. And so when people get discouraged, it's often, I think, because they're assuming they're going to have to somehow figure out how to do what they used to do twice as hard to get twice the result. And it's really about completely shifting the approach. So you're addressing the underlying things that you've never, ever had the opportunity to do before. So it's not going to be the same thing. It's not going to be this horrible struggle that just is doomed to fail, which is what it feels like. Yeah. It's going, yeah, and that's really the thing that I think is the mind shift that, that is helpful. And to also trust, you know, I think a, a lot of people, uh, I know I can be this way, you feel like, God, this process seems so complicated and I don't know what to do with it. I don't know how to do it. It's all new. And, you know, it's this whole thing and I don't want to learn a whole new thing. <laughs> but it's really not that big a deal. It's just a series of small daily things you do, small things, the equivalent of instead of flossing your teeth with your right hand, you do it with your left hand or something like that. It's no more complicated than that. It's just some yeah. awareness. And it's a lot less exhausting than doing what you've been doing and, and falling apart. Getting better takes a lot less energy than falling apart. I like that. That's like a tweetable moment. It's a tweetable moment. <laughs> Say it again, getting better. Getting better doesn't take more energy than falling apart. Falling apart is actually what takes more energy. That's, that's what takes more energy. And people think it's the opposite. It's like, oh, I feel like crap. I'm falling apart. I have no energy to get better. And it's like the, when you take the small steps, getting better is always about small, steady things yeah. that takes so much less energy than falling apart and being exhausted. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's not. It's really not. It, here with the horses, so here's the thing. So thoroughbreds, ex-race horses, are known for being really high energy. And what a lot of professional trainers, people who retrain them to do uh, jumping or other sports, the classic mistake they make is they go, these horses are really high energy. We need to ride them down. We need to work them, work them, work them, get them exhausted. And that way they'll finally figure out that they don't have to do that. Yeah. Well, a thoroughbred is hardwired to run till it drops. And so you <laughs> engage that gear and that just mentally puts them in that zone that, that you know, some of your patients have been in where I just have to work harder, harder, harder. Right. What we do when we go to restart them is we say, actually, we're going to go really slow with you. We're going to do a lot of things before we put the saddle on, where we engage your mind. And we might do some things that the first ride might be 10 minutes, but it's going to be so mentally engaging that you're going to get a lot out of it. Yeah. And so by going slower, we actually get a lot more done because we're changing the horse's mindset. So if I tried to outrun ride them, it would never work. So it's the same kind of principle. That's why I, I, I say it with such confidence because I, I see it in day to day in my work. But it's the same thing is true. We put a lot of uh, effort into resisting change because we just assume change is going to be more exhausting and beyond our capability. But small change in the right direction, you immediately feel results. And that is so much more satisfying. I mean, it gives you, the, you know, the, the faith to keep stepping forward. Awesome. I may have to have you on weekly then or something. <laughs> a dose of uh, inspiration. 
<laughs> happy to do it. Yeah. So how do people connect with you if they want to, like the, the horse organization? You said you had a book as well. Yes. So the name of my book is called Beyond the Home Stretch. And uh, it's about kind of my journey of changing careers. I always tell people it's a funny book. No horses die. It's not that kind <laughs> of a book. And, uh, and it's available on, you know, Amazon, all the usual places, Kindle. You know, it's, it's a funny book. Like I said, don't, don't be afraid to, to read it. And uh, the name of my organization is LOPE, L-O-P-E. It stands for Lone Star Outreach to Playsex Racers. But I just like the word LOPE. LOPE <laughs> means uh, it's a slow, cadenced gait in a horse. So yeah. I just like the idea of that. The, name, the website address is L-O-P-E-T-X dot O-R-G. And we're on Facebook. We're super cool. You guys should check us out. We have lots of great photos and videos of horses at any given moment. Cool. And that's how you reach me. Awesome. Yeah, I'll link all that stuff in the show notes. And um, I know nothing about horses. I think I've ridden one maybe in my lifetime. <laughs> um, if there's an animal I'm very intimidated by, it's a horse. <laughs> so, maybe well, we have, I also do a, a workshop series privately. It's just a, like a side business, side hustle I do called Horse Wise. And what we do with that is when we take people like you who maybe have been drawn to horses or think they're cool but they're afraid of them. And we do a little workshop series for, you know, like hour and a half where we have you handle and work with horses that are very quiet. We teach you their body language so that they don't seem so mysteriously scary. Yeah. And uh, people really enjoy it. It's also kind of a fun, you know, get in the country for like an hour and a half experience and uh, you don't have to ride and you don't have to do anything you're not comfortable with, but everyone always ends up wanting to pet the horse, lead the horse, watch the horse. So it's kind of fun. Awesome. Cool. And Austin's exploding, so that probably means more yes, more opportunities for <laughs> the transient people coming in. That's right. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing this. This has been amazing. I'm um, glad you could be on the show. Glad you're, you're you're living your mission. Like one of the first things you told me was you wanted to be badass at 90 years old. So sounds <laughs> like you're in that direction. Not anywhere near 90 yet, but no. Um, yeah, we'll talk and. I don't know, a few decades down the road. <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. We'll see who can bench press more. <laughs> I know. No kidding. Between you and your sister, I got a lot I to know. keep up with. Yeah, my sister can kill me now, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool. thank you for having me on. I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. Thank you. Take care. All right. Thanks for listening to the Commission Client Podcast. If you found that hopeful, inspiring, or entertaining, we would love some iTunes love. And as all podcasters request, please subscribe to our show and your favorite podcast listening app. I'm Dr. Kurt Perkins, toasting you to a life of more health and less health care.